one of the things that I love and that I'm, I get so excited about is that between two people, like I come with my stuff and you come with your stuff and we have whatever, however many years of experiences and thoughts and assumptions and stuff we've done. But then we come together and we start to talk and we are creating a thing that has never been there before, which is like, am I allowed to cuss? Like that is fucking magical. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I talk with movement enthusiasts to learn who they are, what they do, and why they do it. This is episode number 89, Angie Flynn McKeever, Intention, Communication, and Storytelling. Although she is officially an expert in communication, Angie Flynn McKeever simply considers herself constantly fascinated by it. She discusses intention, what it is, coaching it, and practicing it. Angie shares her own stories of intention, coaching, and travel, and gives advice on finding your guiding stars. She unpacks her thoughts on the power of storytelling and how to use your intention to chart your course. Angie Flynn McKeever is a communications expert, theater director, and businesswoman based in North Carolina. As the founder of Ignite CSP, she uses her theater experience to coach others in effective and intentional communication. Angie and her husband are also the founders of the North Carolina Stage Company, an award-winning theater in its 19th season. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 89. This episode is also available as a video stream from our forum. No hooks, just free content. Go to forum.moversmindset.com. Bringing you ad-free Movers Mindset takes us a ridiculous number of hours each month. If you find any joy and stimulation in what we create, please consider supporting us on Patreon with a recurring monthly donation of your choosing between a cup of coffee and a good dinner. Thanks for listening. Hey, welcome, Angie. Super Thank excited you. to get to Thank talk you. to you. Yes, me too. Let's start by saying... I always hate to pigeonhole people, but I'm going to pigeonhole you and say, you're like the intention person. So if I had to pick, I don't know if I could pick one word, but if I had to say, what is it that Angie would love us all to figure out? It would be intention. So I wanted to start there because I think my, my guess is that that colors or is going to color a lot of where we go when we talk about things. Cause I've I don't want to say I've only recently discovered intention, but I've only recently discovered intention. And I think that that's so important to your work and your through line. So can you tell me a little bit about what you think people get wrong about intention? Yes. Uh, the short answer is yes. I can tell you what I, what I think. People oh, get wrong about grammar intention. geek. I love it. No, I no, no. That. But I'll give you, I, 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 uh, I am having this, this moment of like so many things rushing into my head that I would love to say about this. When, when I talk about the idea of intention and communication, as you mentioned in my bio, it really comes from this idea of how we create authentic communication on stage in theater. This is, this is really where my interest in this way of approaching communication skills came from. And I, this isn't how I explain it to everybody. Uh, I, I have a shorthand, but I would love to dig into it a little bit here because it does come from the way that good actors approach their craft of acting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think that acting is about feeling, 
right? That I need to feel a lot of big feelings and I need to feel a lot of emotions. I'm going to feel sad or I'm going to feel happy or I'm going to feel in love. But actually what actors are doing is they are trying to figure out in a scene, how do I get what I need? And that's where intention really lives. And that's only true for actors because that's true for all of us. So, so to start from that place of, okay, what do I need in this moment? What do I need from, oh, what's an example? I want to get my, my spouse to take out the garbage, all right? There are a lot of ways that I can talk about that, right? I can, I can, I can try to shame him into doing it. I can- The long uh, list of don't do the following, right? <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. I can, I can hint that I did it last time. I can, I, can, I can make him feel like he'll be my hero if he does it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and one thing that these things all have in common is that they're all active. It's how, do, how am I going to try to make the other person feel? What's the impact I want to mm-hmm. have on them? And then that, that really informs how I'm going to show up, my, my intention. What's, how, what's the bridge between this need that I have and the outcome that I'm hoping to see on the other side? So what, um, I'm, you're, you're talking about actors, and I'm like, I don't think I've ever thought about, I mean, I can imagine like an actor needs lights and the actor needs the stage. There's a couple of like basic things, but like what would an actor actually need, you know, in the 37th performance 10 minutes in? Oh gosh. Well, the character it needs the same thing every time, right? So the character needs to squash the insurrection or to get everybody on their side or to I mean think about I mean, the thing that's coming to mind for me is the um the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V where right. Henry V is like once more into the breach, right? He's really trying to rally these people who are outnumbered looking death in the face, right? So he's he is inspiring them to follow him into probably certain death. And no matter how many times the actor playing Henry V has done that speech, he's got to summon that same need because it has to feel like in the moment that those troops might turn around and and get on their horses and go home. Hmm. Yeah, It has to feel like, yeah, yeah, there's something at stake. And because there's something at stake for all of us all the time, most of the time, thank goodness, it's low stakes, right? We're not doing what Henry V is doing, but... (laughs) But sometimes we're, you know, we're asking somebody to be our life partner or yeah. we're it can asking totally, somebody for a raise. It can feel like it's that scale. I mean, I've never led troops, but I, I, I don't know if I have a specific example. It pops the head, but I bet I could think of one where it's like, I really feel like this thing that I'm trying to accomplish is life or death or it sure feels yeah. that way. Yeah. So yeah, there's that, that lesson would, seems to me that lesson would apply widely to a wide number of people. Do you find, uh, there's just so many places to go. Like, <laughs> I'm personally curious about theater direction, but I don't know that, like, so the, sometimes people ask me, who listens to the podcast? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I know what the <laughs> numbers are, but I have no clue. It could be my mom pressing download on 15 iPhones she hid from me that I don't know about. So <laughs> I, I think the, the question in, in my mind is, I started, so like seven, eight years ago, I, I began my personal rediscovery of movement. Like I, I just had gotten to a point in my life at like 40 something that I, I wasn't moving very much anymore. You get to a place where you don't have to move and you don't have to carve your way through life as much. And then I kind of rediscovered movement. That's a great long story. 
and anybody listening to the podcast is like, please don't tell the story again. And I didn't come back to movement thinking about intention or even thinking about having a coherent story that I was trying to craft for myself. I was just like, wow, this is cool. I'm going that way. And I, I think that looking back, I was like, oh, I realize now that I have found a line or I have, so I, I don't want to say like, I found my intention, but I feel like I found an intention and then things got easier. So what I'm thinking is, it seems to me like people who are probably further along in the movement journey than me, but a lot less further along in age might not have thought about this. So I'm wondering what your experience has been when you're coaching people. It sounds like you generally coach people of our age cohort and people who are in professional capacities, but have you ever tried to coach intention to people who are much younger? Oh, interesting. Yes, I have. You know, it's interesting when you're a, a coach, it's hard to to shut that lens off. <laughs> and so it, it comes up a lot, whether I'm, 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 you know, whether I'm on the clock specifically right. or not. I will tell you, I have, I have two kids, both teenagers, and and they are their intention gurus, I, and not because I, I think it's really osmosis and mm. so much more self reflective than than I certainly was for for at that age or for right. years afterwards. But I think you know the the thing I haven't really touched on, but that you alluded to here is that we are always operating with some kind of intention. And I think what you're describing is what I would call a deliberate intention. It's, I have found this thing that is propelling me that I feel positive about. I'm putting words in your mouth. So, I, I, but that's, that's what I'm, that's you're what right. I got a little bit I, from what you're, you're yeah, saying. Yeah. Like the default, because I know you've talked, you and I have talked, if we've talked about it or if I've heard you talk about it, about the difference between deliberate and default intention. I'm like, yeah, oh well, yeah, good point. I missed that because Obviously, everybody has an intention, I think. But anyway, sorry. Keep yeah, going. but Keep so. Keep words in my mouth. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, but because I think for me, the, the biggest piece of the, like, we can all kind of go, oh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to set a good intention for myself, or I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, motivate myself. I'm going to find an inspiration. I'm going to put that quote up on the wall from, right. you know, fill in the blank. What's, what's harder work, I think, and messier work is identifying where our intentions lead us when we're not being so deliberate, when we're not being so intentional, frankly. Mm. So what's that more reflexive, that more reactive place that we can be? And it's it's interesting to me that you, I've been thinking about the, the intersection between intention and movement a lot, because like you, I, I really found an intentional movement practice. I mean, really within the last eight years or so. And it shows up, intention shows up so much in that for me. Am I gonna, is my default intention going to kick in because we're doing something I don't really enjoy. And so I'm just, my, my intention is going to be to get this over with or to get through it. Right. Or am I going to find that moment that inner that, that little crux of a moment and go, oops, okay. I caught myself. I have an opportunity here to choose something different, to choose a deliberate intention of working on one specific thing I want to get better at, or the intention could just be, I'm just going to stay fully present Yeah, presence for this. or self-awareness. Or exactly, focus. exactly. What movement practice? I do yoga and CrossFit. Mm, oh, that's a, at the same time? That's no. <laughs> no, I'm just being trite. <laughs> I I'm going to say dabbled, although I think I got pretty serious. I dabbled at yin yoga, Y-I-N-N, -N, for a while. And that 
fit really well. And now I'm just like, yeah. And then I, I kind of wandered away from it. And then I'm, I'm kind of, kind of worked out well because then COVID happened. I'm like, I don't know if I want to like do a class through. Yeah. Sorry. Off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't use the under caffeinated excuse because I'm sufficiently caffeinated. What about, so you, and I'm, you didn't quite, and I don't, not because I want the answer, but because I really am curious. You didn't quite describe your, uh, any specific examples of where you've run into coaching people who are younger. So I think you, you, you did a nice job of like framing what I didn't do, which is the point out the difference between intentional and default. But I'm just like, I'm super curious about, you know, what is it about 14 year old kids that makes it? So I always look at them and go, this, you guys are so unintentional. Like, and, and, but clearly they, they have a default intention, but so I just want to like poke back at, let's go back to the coaching, you know, seeing yeah. you have to coach them on the clock, but coaching intention in people who are younger. I, I actually find it easier as we, and I, I promise I'm not a, avoid, I will come back to this, but as, <laughs> in, as, as a way of contrast, <laughs> as we get older, and this is not going to shock anybody, we, we, our patterns become more solidified. Our ways of thinking about ourselves that we're particularly invested in become very tough to break through. And, and as we get older, we get busier and we're more, and obviously I'm painting, painting with a very broad brush right now, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, we also are, are a little more interested in how am I going to get to these results quickly, right? Mm-hmm. So what I find a lot in my work is that people want to know, what do I do with my hands? How do I get rid of filler words? And how can I show more confidence? Those are the things that come up most frequently and for people, for me, for people in my field. And the answer to all of that is intention. The answer to all of that is actually, you have to do some really deep personal work to figure out where you're coming from and what motivates you and what things you're trying to hide and what things upset you. Okay, guess what? Nobody wants to hear that, right? (laughs) Let alone do it, right? (laughs) Let alone do it, right? Not nobody, but, but. To get back to your to your your actual question, younger people, particularly teenagers, you know, people who are newly in the workforce, this feels like another tool to them. So talking about, hey, let's let's really look at your what your default intention may be in this in this moment and how you can strengthen the muscles of choosing a deliberate intention. What could that deliberate intention be? They just have fewer defenses around that. So it's a little bit easier to break through. Hmm. So you you mentioned workforce. And before we started recording, I said, I don't have a list of questions. It doesn't mean I don't have 500 questions in my head. And one of the things I was thinking about was, I don't actually know the size of like the number of people that you, I'm going to say deal with. I don't mean it in negative connotation. The number of people that you deal with in a business context. So I'm wondering about, so we're talking about younger people, we're talking about workforce. What are your thoughts, your ideas, your experiences on trying to coach people who are working with you or for you directly and to try and get them to set intentions that you think would you know, help them discover intentions that would make the team work better or make you all move better in the same direction? Like that that's seems to be a whole different, well, different facet of the same thing. 
Yeah. So are you asking with, with the coaches who work with me at Ignite, like how do we use intention yeah, that's in a good, serving that's a good our, start there. our yeah. client? I'm guessing that your coaches are the same age cohort as you more or less. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. So I'd yeah, let's start there. That's a good place to start. Yeah. We're intention nerds. We talk about this <laughs> all the time. I mean, really, once you start looking at the world through this lens, I mean, it just changes. It changes the way you see uh, the people around you. It changes the, the it, it just, there's, there's another level of, I think, understanding and empathy, frankly, of, mm. oh, here's where this person seems to be coming from, or here's, so we, we talk about this a lot. We talk a lot about what intention do we need to bring to this workshop? Oh crap, something went wrong. Oh, the, there's a, there's a funky energy in here today. We need to adjust. It is our primary tool for doing the work that we do, bringing that, that really deliberate utilization of intention so that it's not just this, it's not just this fluffy ephemeral idea. It's how am I going to use intention to actually change the way I am showing up and communicating with other people? And um, so do you set... So what do you do? And I, I, I don't like I have a specific, I'm trying to get you to like, give me a specific answer to a particular problem, but, but, and, and I'm also, I'm also double thinking like, well, it's probably going to be, <laughs> but what do you do when you, when you're in a situation and you're like, okay, I'm not actually in control of this situation. I mean, if, if you look at the org chart or you ask somebody who doesn't know what's going on, they might say, yeah, you're in control. But if you're not actually in control of the situation, how do you decide how much time to spend like, doing the long detour coaching the person versus trying to like put the fire out or like work on the thing because i'm guessing you're going to say just fix the person and then (laughs) no that's like how do you how do you decide how to balance that because like you know if one's own intention oh see it's so meta even this acronym is my intention to do the project or is my intention to help the person yeah anyway right if I'm understanding your question correctly, I don't always there, ask questions. I, I tend to just stick words you're, together. You're throw, well, to, I'll, <laughs> then I'll, I'll navigate my way through what you said, and and I know that you'll come back and and ask another it's question. If to I go along, take this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, if I am, if I feel like there are competing tensions in coaching someone, hmm, that's a good. Yeah. Which there almost always are, right? So there, there are in any time I'm coaching somebody, there is the immediate thing that they want to get better at very often it's a difficult conversation they have to have like giving feedback to somebody they need Mm. to make a strategic ask at work for something that they need Mm -hmm. they're giving a big presentation or a keynote something like that so there is this immediate thing on the horizon that they want to get better at and we are great at let's reorganize your content let's we're going to, we're going to video you. We're going to put you through your paces. We're going to look back at this. We're going to give you feedback. We're going to tell you what's working well and what you need to do differently. You know, we, all of that tactical stuff is right there. At the same time, we want to give this, we want to do this intention work so that this isn't a one-off so that in the future they can actually apply this toolkit of intention alignment and practice, which is our our three-part process to any, anything like this that may come up for them in the future. So it really is a balancing act of, I got to put out this current fire or 
to put it more Project, positively. Yeah. I have to, I have to, well, I, I really <laughs> positive. <spin. Yeah. laughs> well, and I want this person to feel a short term win of yeah. like, Oh my gosh, I stopped uh, pacing madly around the room and just sent my, my energy in one direction. And that transformed everything. I could see it on the video. I could see it in the faces of the people in the room. And I understand that, that in pacing around the room, I'm actually hiding. My intention is to hide. And so I can start to, to move that lever as well. Right. For future issues and future projects. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I turn left. What's something people get wrong about you? In my work? You answer the question in any context you like. Oh, or you could probably just say pass and move on to another question. <laughs> well, the thing that came immediately to mind when you said that was that people usually think we are uh, public speaking coaches. Hmm. And I was, I was so thrilled when I got uh, your, your invitation to speak and you referred to me as a communication skills coach, because that is how I think of myself, but it, it is harder to categorize that people. It's not as easy to um, you get your brain that. around what yeah. that means. Hmm. I wonder if that, does that self-select so that the people who get it are the people who approach you for work? Or do you find that people just like, they don't get it and they still approach you for work or just? I think that's a good question. I think at the outset, when I first started doing this work, it was that people would it was this. It was a second thing that people didn't get it and approached us anyway. anyway. And now we've gotten better about our our messaging, and so it's the second thing on the right track. It occurs to me, I, I, you know, who knows who's going to watch or listen, but it occurs to me the people might think. Uh, now I'm going to put words in your mouth. People might think that you and I have it figured out. Like, oh, Craig's a successful blogger and knows what's going on. Oh, look, Angie runs her own company and started a theater company. Wait, what? And I, I happen to know the story about like like coming from New York city and I'm like, Oh yeah. And successfully navigated that transition from New York city. And I mean, like it was anything untoward, but like, that's not easy to like move from that to a completely different. So like people might think that Angie has it all figured out. And I'm going to guess that no, Angie's just Angie and, you know, gets up in the morning and says, let's see, how do I move these chess pieces in the directions I'd like to move them? So I'm wondering if there's, if there's somebody who's listening now, I don't have a particular audience member. In, like, I don't have like a stereotypical audience member, but like, if there's somebody who's, oh, let's pigeonhole, let's say they're in their 20s. So, not, you know, in high school and still doing the hormonal thing, but somebody who's coming out of college and, okay, welcome to the world. Here's your, you know, out the door you go. I see a number of those people who aren't sure how to like make their way in that space. And I think, and this is part of why I wanted to talk to you. I think that intention is like, yeah, instead of trying to figure out how to navigate the world, figure out how to decide what you want to do. And then, you know, you'll find that you're working on that and that you're recently, I've been thinking about, you know, pointillism is the painting mm-hmm. with the dots. Um, Surat. Yeah, exactly. I have a blog post publishing today. That's a kind of Surat reference in it. Oh, cool. An irreverent Surat reference. But anyway, I, I sometimes I feel like I've been painting that way. Not that I'm a painter. And then I, you know, you like I I lean back and this is a new thing. Glasses like whoa, oh, oh, it's people on us. I get it now. You know, like <laughs> that that zoom in and zoom out thing. And if you're because I remember if you're at that point in your life where you've only got like four dots on the canvas, when you when you zoom out, it's like it's four dots on a canvas. I don't I don't see it yet. So I'm just wondering if you have anything that you think would help someone who's got four or five dots on the canvas, but 
doesn't really know where they want to go, but it's kind of okay with like, yeah, I'm just how do I figure out how to keep putting dots on the canvas? Well, how do I get the motivation to, you know, I don't think it's true. Like follow your bliss. No, you have to have some bigger why to steal Simon Sinek's thing, some bigger why burning mm-hmm. inside you. So what advice would you give to somebody who's 20, really into movement, would do things that you and I would go, well, that's really impressive, but they don't really seem to have like a rudder on the ship yet. That's a hard one. That is a hard one. Sometimes I just ran up on them and make a question. Well, I, I want to go back to the the the, the first, the, your kind of entry point into what you were saying here, which is that, you know, when, when you describe me as an expert, uh, it's so funny because I don't think of myself that way. I think of myself who is in this space. And to me, expert implies that I know all there is to know about this. And to me, what it really means is I, I think about this all the time and I'm yes. endlessly fascinated by this topic. And so I, I read other people's work and I talk with my colleagues and we, like I said, we really nerd out about this idea of like, you know, what happened in this moment and how does yes. this work? And I liked your taxi cab blog post, by the way, I'm just going to drop that in there oh, thank because you. I know I, the context and you know the context and I'm it's like, yes, I agree with you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. I was actually a little nervous to write that with the context being what it was. Yeah. And I, and it's like, uh, I have to figure out how to, and like, anyway, keep going. I just wanted to drop in there like, oh, by the way, mad props on the taxi cab post. I mean, Thank not you. that I, not that I want to see you shoot slings and arrows at, you know, but like that no, one, no. I agree with you. Yes. Thank you. Sorry. I derailed your train of thought because I had to like fanboy. Sorry. <laughs> but I, but I think that I guess this is a long way to get around to the 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 meat of your question, which is it, that is the why for me. And so, oh gosh, you know, when I was just coming out of school, I was very sure in the way of of a, a certain uh, stamp of twenty something year old that I knew exactly who I was, exactly what I liked, exactly what I didn't like exactly how my life was going to play out. And, you know, shockingly enough, every, every part of that has been amended in the years nope. since then. <laughs> right. In, in big ways and in small ways. Right. So the thing though, that has been a constant for me that would have been those four or five dots when I was 21, 22 years old is that, and, and again, this is, this is, this is my thing. So this is, I'm not suggesting to other 21 and 22 year olds that this should be their thing. But for me, it was a really deep interest in other people's stories. At that time, the way that looked for me was working in theater and, and creating, figuring out ways to create those stories on stage and sharing them with other people and working collaboratively with other artists. That was hugely important to me. And so those were my a couple of my important dots. Guide stars, yeah. Yeah. And so at the time, of course, I thought, well, this is it for me forever. And I'm going to be this kind of director. And I'm going to, this, these are going to, this is going to be the latter. And because of an, a, a, a number of things that happened and that I chose, that wasn't right. That, or that's not where I am now. And who knows where I'll be five, 10, 15, 20 years from now. But I do think those. I think at this point I can feel pretty confident in saying that th- those things are really important to me as, yeah, guiding stars. And so finding those things, and for me that is a, those are really visceral. Like they, I feel like they really reside in me, 
right? I don't have to find them. I don't have to think to myself, what are some things that might be important to me? Like I know those, you know? And so whatever those are. (laughs) You know, I'm laughing. I'm laughing with you. Like someone said, like, find your passion. It's easy. What did you spend yesterday on? That's what you're passionate about. And David, a great David Letterman quote is, everybody's life has a purpose. Yours could be watching television. And I I believe he meant it like sarcastically, like you probably have a purpose and it's not watching television. But um, I I think you're totally right about, I love the word visceral. The idea of like, I think embodied movement practices that gets thrown around like as a term. And people that I've talked to, it's like when they throw that term out, it's because they're, they can't, they're like, ah, they, they mean so much when they say embodied movement. They don't mean what people have no clue what that is. They don't mean like, oh yeah, it's just a grab bag where it's like, no, they have a deep meaning to that. And I've always liked the idea of visceral about like the, the idea of physically experiencing as well as conceptually understanding whatever the event is we're talking about. Yeah. And I had something, you know, the, you know, the conversational tactic about like, make sure you repeat things that people say so that you're, uh, I had like a thing that I wanted to hold on to. And then I started talking and I screwed it up. What's, oh, there's so many things. Is there, and, and this is when Craig panics, Craig goes, is there anything that was on your mind on the way to the interview that you're like, I want to make sure we get to. <laughs> I will share this, this thing that may or may not be interesting to you. Cause this was the second thing that came up when you said, what do people get wrong about you? And it was that people often think I'm an actor and I'm, I'm not an actor. And I, 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 I did a very common, had a very common trajectory, which is that I acted all the way through college and then had like one or two tiny forays after college. But I really have, you know, since mid-college been a director and that's, that's where my focus has been. But it's very interesting. And I don't know if people hear theater and they assume actor. Yeah, or- I, I, I'm not disavowing, like denying that you're right, but I'm like, yeah, why would somebody... Because I mean, for everything, well, I mean, I've met you in a context of podcasting. So of course, the first thing I'm thinking is podcaster, but I, you know, just glancing at your website and stuff that there doesn't scream, I'm an actress. Like, but anyway, yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Hmm. What? yeah, I don't know. There's so many millions and millions of questions. How about this? So let's, let's go a little meta. So having now, so you and I have talked eh, maybe a few hours, like on, you know, video calls, but we never met in person. And what are your thoughts are on how I do the, I don't like the word interview personally, but I, this is an interview. What are your thoughts on, on like how I deploy interviewing as a tool? Not because I want free coaching, but because I'm actually interested to see how you're like, I want to pin you on the spot with something that's really tricky and then see what you do with it. Because I think it, <laughs> I think it not because I'm an asshole, but because it, it shows people's skill set in here i'm like revealing it shows people's skill set and how they think if you give them a really challenging task and say here do something with this so if i say what do you think about how i perform interviews yeah i here's what i love about your style and i actually have listened to a lot of your podcasts Uh oh (laughs) no 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 i i what i really i and, and again, I'm an intention nerd. So this is what I think about when I listen to podcasts, when I listen to audiobooks, when I watch people on TV. I mean, there's this, and it's it's really not from a, I'm a very uncritical listener. Mm. I engage with almost everything from a place of, yeah, I want this to be great because I'm investing my time and energy in it, right? And 
the kinds of interviews that I, I will find don't work as well for me are when I feel like somebody's really locked into their questions, that they, you know, diligently sat down with their legal pad and they wrote out numbers one through 12, and then it doesn't matter what I say right. or what the interviewee <laughs> says, there's going to be a little pause and then on to the next question, yeah. right? Which which I, I think is, again, if I can put words in your mouth, is why you you don't like to call what you do an interview, that it is a conversation. And that to me, and again, this is just my taste, it's subjective, but except it's not because I'm about to say like, I think I'm just laughing at my own mental machinations because one of the things that I love and that I am, I get so excited about is that between two people, like I come with my stuff and you come with your stuff and we have whatever, however many years of experiences and thoughts and assumptions and stuff we've done but then we come together and we start to talk and we are creating a thing that has never been there before, which is like, am I allowed to cuss? Like that is fucking magical. <laughs> Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you know what I mean? That's I miraculous that we can yeah. do that. And so, I mean, that to me is when you have an, an interview like that is very scripted and very structured when one has, when one experiences that, it doesn't make any, there's no room for that serendipity. There's no room for that magic. There's no room for this thing to be created. But the uh, the hard part of that, of, of doing what you do, and the thing that I actually think you do really well is you allow yourself to walk into this space. I'd call it letting go of the trapeze. You're like, right. I did all my work, right? I prepped over here. I did my stretches and I did my whatever. And then I go up and I grab the trapeze and now I'm going to let go. And I'm going to trust that this conversational partner is going to catch me. And that's vulnerable. It's present that you can't be anything but present when you do that. Right. Or you're going to fall into the safety net. Fall on your face. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there is a safety net. When you're... <laughs> right. But I mean, that, that's, you know, that makes sense. But anyway, that's my, that's my very long answer to your, your question. I, um, Thank you for like, I talk about the conversational baton sometimes yeah. and in most human conversation, there is an invisible baton that most people, I was going to say, they're passing back and forth. No, in reality, they're grabbing it from each other. Give me the thing. You know, like it's most conversations are antagonistic. People trying to get, you know, they want to be heard. Listening to refute versus listening to understand. But what I'm trying to do is, first of all, to be able to learn to not to do that. But now what I'm trying to do is I, I'm trying to push the baton back to the other person. So uh, I used to have to work really hard to shut up when someone else is talking because I'm like, wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to like grab the baton and then run with the same train of thought. And then I kind of got over that. People who are listening going, shut up, Craig. No, maybe you should listen. The, <laughs> then after I figured that out, then I wanted to always finish what you were saying. Like I get excited because when my train of thought matches yours, I'm like, oh, this is cool. Because now at some point you're going to have a little zig when I was going to zag. And that's going to be a really subtle thing that I'm super excited about. And then I try and finish people's sentences. So I had to learn to get over that. And now what, I, what I'm excited about is how long can I shut up? And how long does this person feel so comfortable that they they just get more and more excited because I'm obviously getting excited, but I'm also not interrupting them. So that I like seeing people realize that they're on a stage, not to make a theater 
reference, mm -hmm. but that they're on a stage, they're in a space where if I was any more excited to be talking to you, the top of my head would fall off, you know, or something like that. That's the space that I try to create. And we work really hard at that. You know, now you've caught a, a teeny little glimpse of it. And um, Melissa and I are always a little depressed because we, we get so much more chance to build that space when we're interviewing in person than we do virtually. Mm -hmm. But I always, I have like terrible imposter syndrome about asking people for time. So this interview that we're doing is scheduled in a two hour window. And for me, it's like, oh, every, every time I'm like, well, I hope they don't go two hours. Why would I want to talk to you for two hours? And then like in person, we ask for three and invariably it, it goes well. And the time is always like, oh, the time is up. But I really, to me, that's always a struggle to like, I don't. I have horrible imposter syndrome about like, yeah, nothing I do is worth listening to. So I'm not, but I wasn't asking you because I wanted an attaboy. I was asking because I think your insight on the kinds of conversations that attract you. Um, I think, I think that's the kind of conversation that attracts everybody. And if they're currently attracted to other kinds of conversations just because they haven't tasted enough things at the, at the bar to realize that, mm -hmm. no, you know, scotch on the rocks or whatever is really better than a complicated drink with a umbrella in it. Uh, another random, if you could go anywhere, like a, a vacation kind of space, you know, like leaving out logistics of like, well, you know, it might bring other people, but just like, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would it be? Gosh, I'm torn between going back to a cool place, you know, one of the cool places I've already been that I loved or going somewhere new. And I think, go ahead. Uh, that was where I'm like, damn, audio equipment. I knew you would hear me make that sound because I was trying to shut up. I was going to say, why do you want to go back? Like, why would, why would you want to go back to an, another place? Like, I, I'm sorry, why would you miss a spoke? Why would you want to go back to a place you've already been? Well, there are some places I've been that I didn't go with my family and I would actually really love to see their reactions and to experience it again mm. with them. So that's that's one thought that I'm having. Like I went to Alaska when I was in my mid-20s and it was such an incredible trip on every front that it's just something I would, I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it again and I'd love to take my husband and my kids. I, I'm going to answer the question this way. If I could just take a trip, I would go alone. I would fly, I think, to maybe Spain or possibly France, but maybe Spain. And then I would get off the plane and I would just see what happened and spend maybe four or five weeks just going where the wind took me. You my brain jumped to, and I'm afraid to drop the name because I'm going to get it wrong. There's a podcaster who talks about walking. Do you know who I mean? Mm -mm. Yeah. I think it's Diane Wizga. Oh, yeah. Is, is that, how do you say Diane's last name? I don't know, but I know exactly who you're talking <laughs> about. And she talks about walking. I think she actually talks about walking in Spain now that I think about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think she walked a 500 mile something. There's like a, you know, a, yeah. a region. But where, where I'm going with this train of thought is I've realized we've been talking about and around communication, but 
I often want to talk to people and I haven't found a good partner yet to talk about, about perambulation, like walking and thinking, like <laughs> you may, I do it like I do that walking and thinking thing every day. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people who, who do uh, movement, a lot of times we're talking about parkour and Arthur de and these other free running spectacular types of movement. They, I've had people actually talk about jumping without thinking, jumping with thinking and, and like doing movement in order to have thoughts. Mm. And I'm just wondering, do you walk for the purposes of sorting your thoughts out? I mean to, I mean to do that. <laughs> uh, I, by which I mean, I have read a lot about people doing that. And I have thought to myself, that would be really good for me. And I have yet to put it into practice. Mm. I know, and I'm, I'm not trying to like push you on the spot, but I'm just like, oh my God, it's totally a thing. You really should totally do it. And uh, what I'm thinking was there's also, you can spot people who are doing it. Sometimes they're talking to themselves. This is usually me. Like I'm talking. <laughs> the only thing that saves me is people assume that I have one of those teeny tiny little Bluetooth earpieces in. They just assume I'm on the phone. Right. But you can spot somebody who's doing it because they walk at a certain speed. They, they like engage with their environment a certain way. Um, so if you're within the sound of my voice, I highly recommend trying it. Um, I listened to a couple of podcasts. I used to walk like a certain, it's not a loop, but walk like a certain route listening to podcasts. And then when I came back, I'm like, eh, it's, I actually started, I usually like listen one part of the walk and then I put the audio gear away and then I just, with no intention about thinking about anything in particular, I just start walking. And by the end of the walk, I'm like running because I need to get to like my computer to like write stuff down and, and like right. sort things out. So um, it's just perambulation sprung to mind when you're talking about wandering Spain. And now I'm thinking I should go wander Spain. That sounds good, <sighs> right? Too many, yeah, it's too many, too many things to do. I mentioned, let's, let's, um, is there, uh, see, I've been in all the podcasts. So if I say things like, Angie, is there a story you'd like to share? To me, it feels like, oh God, this again. But you know, you haven't had this experience yet. So Angie, is there a story that you'd like to share? There's so many stories. You know, I'll share the story that I think really can encapsulate what I mean about intention from a completely different standpoint. And this is a, a play that I was directing. This was a number of years ago. I was directing uh, True West by Sam Shepard. And this play takes place in um, this suburban home in, I think it's Arizona. And it follows these two brothers. And the brothers, one is kind of a ne'er-do-well. He's been a criminal and a rogue. And the other is the fine, upstanding brother who their mother has asked to house house it for her while she goes on a cruise. The 'er ne'er-do-well brother finds out that the upstanding brother is alone at the house and basically crashes this time. (laughs) Scene is set, right? (laughs) Right. So that's, that's your exposition. And as we were, so when, when you're when you're producing a play, one of the things that happens is early on you have what are called design meetings, and this is exactly what it sounds like. It's when the director and the stage manager and all the designers, so the sets, lights, costumes, props, sound, um, sometimes fight choreography if you have that, you're all figuring out like what is this play, this production at this time and this place for this community, what is this going to look like? What's it going to sound like? What is the container? 
that we all need to create to tell the story in the best way that we can right now. So we were having these early meetings and there's a scene in the play where uh, one of the brothers has gone out in the middle of the night and burgled every house in the neighborhood and (laughs) stolen (laughs) toasters, stolen the toaster from every house. So the, the, the lights come up on this scene and every surface is covered in toasters. That's how it's written, right? That's in stage directions, right? right? (laughs) Toasters everywhere. And over the course of the ensuing scene, the brother, and this is not the 'er ne'er-do-well brother, uh, by the way, this is the, this is the fine upstanding brother is the one who has stolen all the toasters. He is running around and putting bread in the toasters and toasting all of this bread. So we're talking about in these meetings, okay, how are we going to do this? And an important piece of context here is that the, the North Carolina Stage Company is um, it w- is not a purpose-built theater. It's a space that we reclaimed and turned into a theater, and we have limited electricity, to, to put it simply. And so the lighting designer said to me, well, Angie, you can have lights or you or, can have toasters and you can't have both. Yeah, toasters are a large power draw. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we're all sitting there trying to figure out, okay, how do we get what we want? And this is the kind of problem solving that comes up in theater all the time, right? So how are we going to tell this story? What, what can we do creatively, collaboratively that is going to be able to f- really fulfill our contract with the audience that we are going to bring them this thing that we said that we were going to bring that we're going to tell them the story in the best way way that we can. This is really where the intention piece comes in, right? So it'd be really easy to say, oh, okay, well then, I mean, obviously we need lights. That's a, that's non-negotiable. So I guess, you know, the toasters won't be plugged in or whatever, right? But in leading this team, part of the conversation I wanted to have is, how are we going to, how can we do this to the best way possible? What haven't we thought of yet? How can I pull us towards solving the problem again with this idea of deliberate intention? So I, so we're batting this idea around, okay, like what are we going to do and how we need to have the toasters. The toasters are important, blah, 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 blah. So the lighting designer is literally, literally doing math on the back of a napkin, right? (laughs) If a toaster draws 15. (laughs) Right, exactly. And he goes, okay, here's what I figured out. It's the heating coil in the toaster that's drawing the power. I can take the heating coil out of the toasters. And then we can actually run the electrical impulses that fire each toaster through the light board. Now, what this means is that I can to ma- I can create maximum comedic effect by choosing when each toaster is going to fire, depending on where the actor is. I can choreograph the whole thing. <laughs> I have to tell you, we did this play, God, 12 or 13 years ago, and people still talk about how hard they laughed at that toaster scene. Toaster scene. And it's because we were able to push through that obstacle of his ultimatum of you can have this or you can have that, but you can't have both to finding that creative 
solution, which was actually better than if we had just been able to plug in every toaster, right? <laughs> Make a whole bunch of toast, right? Right. And then the, so the coda to that story is, so having gotten what I wanted, right, which was lights and toasters, I then said, well, okay, can I have one toaster with a heating element? <laughs> Because I really want to be able to smell the toast, right? Yes, like it's a small enough, it's an intimate enough space that we can ha- we can do that. Like we can, people will be able to smell the toast. And he would like more back in the napkin. Matthew was like, okay, you can have one yeah, one like heating a, element, one assistant in the back actually making toast the whole time. <laughs> right, that's true. That's it, yeah. yeah. So that's anyway, me. that I I that is one of those multi-purpose stories that depending on what I want to talk about, uh, it can be sliced and diced and told in all kinds of different ways. Storytelling. That's, that's a really good story. I love the day that somebody tells me a story that I go, eh, I will stop podcasting because it's a great story. I love it. I was there. I smelled the toast. I'm not hungry for toast. Thank you very much. But I, I, I love stories and I don't need to put my two cents on why I like the story. Why? Yeah. I always say when guests go, hmm, that's a good question. And then look up, which I'm sitting here looking at, there's a big window. I'm looking out the window like, uh-huh. hmm, quick, think of something else cool to do with Angie's time before I run out of time. Why? And then like, I'm torn between digging further into coaching because I think a lot of people who are interested in movement are interested in becoming movement coaches, right? Mm-hmm. Like literally, like I would like to get paid to teach people how to jump or run or yoga or whatever. Um, so I'm torn between going more into things that you might have that would help people who are starting out to find their way. I'm torn between going there and, and going further into the storytelling itself as a tool direction. So I often say on the mic and off that this is like strolling down a very large avenue, maybe fifth. And then... Which, which I have the whole other story. I've, I've walked from like 89th down Broadway to Battery Park, but like there's a lot of side streets. So, like, two side streets I see one is talk more about helping people find their way coaching and helping people use storytelling as a tool. Your choice. I don't know that those are mutually exclusive, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, at least for me, story and metaphor and example and illustration are a foundational part of coaching because it helps people see how they can bridge the gap between where they are now and where they want to go. And for me, that is what coaching is, right? Coaching is I'm going to meet you right here, right now, wherever you are. I am going to provide you with unconditional positive regard. I am going to let you know in every way possible that I am on your team and I'm going to help you get to your goal. Along that way, I am going to use all of the tools that I have to encourage you, to listen to you, and to challenge you because that's what a coach does, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm not just here to be your cheerleader and your buddy. The coach is there to say, okay, but you told me you wanted your outcome to be this. And I feel like we've kind of installed over here. Do you want to reassess your outcomes or, or, you know, and that's where at any point along that path, I do think storytelling is important, both eliciting stories from the person that you're coaching. How does this feel to you? What is a, what is a, um, a time that you've maybe experienced something like this before where you either gave up or you persevered you can learn from, from either one of those things. So I, I, I do think, and I'm obviously uh, way back when we were talking about my, 
my four points of pointillism, I said that storytelling and stories were a big part of this for me. So other, other coaches may not share that same viewpoint, but for me, it is a way, it is a means of connection and a means of, 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 of empathy and showing I'm, I'm here with you and I want to help you get where you want to go. I am I am not a coach. I don't play one on TV, but my mind jumped to. Uh, is it my my brain doesn't work anymore? Who who wrote the storytelling animal? The I don't know. Uh, I, I want to say leopard, like the animal, but that's not the right answer. Uh, Can you really see that far? I can't tell. I don't. My depth perception is not. Oh yeah, no. I mean, it's only. <laughs> Yeah, I can't reach it. But <laughs> normally, I wouldn't look at it, but I was like, "God damn it! Where's the book with the?" Oh wait, now we're gonna find it. It is <laughs> Leonard, maybe. Or Melissa could save me by typing it in the chat. Um, I'm a big fan of Annette Simmons. She does a lot of great writing about storytelling, but I don't think that's. Oh, her I don't book. know who that is. She's not saving you. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Jonathan Gottschall. Gottschall. <laughs> Where did the leopard come from, Craig? <laughs> so there is a book called The Storytelling Animal, which there, there, are, there are books that you can't see. These are, these, this is the, do you, know what an, do you know what an anti-library is? Like A-N-T-I library? Like, you know, no. the thing that would be the opposite of a library? No. That's an anti-library. With, there's a few books there that are not part of the anti-library. That is all the stuff I don't know. Okay. Uh, now, the, the exception is there's a couple of books over on the side which are like re- repeats that I give away. So, like, there's a couple of things on here that I am currently reading. But generally, this whole bookshelf behind me is the I have no clue. Like, I don't know oh, wow. what's going on. So, I think I have it set just far enough that even if you zoom in on the video, you really can't read the titles. Can't. Um, but the idea tempting. of having an anti library, which I got from somebody else, I'm going to come back to the storytelling animal. The idea of an anti library is that the first thing that you need to do is find the unknown unknowns before you can even try to learn. I mean, you can just like go randomly learn stuff. I don't recommend that. But if you're going to try and, you know, reach some specific goal or do something uh, in particular, you're going to have to figure out how to make the roadmap to get where you want to go. So to me, that's my anti-library. And that's the only way I'm comfortable with having like 500 books I haven't read. And, and it gives me a chance to sort of like literally stand in front of it and go like, hmm, I think maybe biochemistry, you know, would be the next thing. So it, it reminds me of all the things that I know that I was interested at some point, interested enough to get the book. And I have a very large anti-library of books that are like on the maybe. And then what I do is the third time that I follow with the book, I go, well, any, that book, which I've been virtually, somebody says, you should read that. And I have a bookmark. Okay, fine. Bring the book into the house, put it in the anti-library. I might never read it, but it reminds me, like I have, you know, six inches of stuff on the U.S. Constitution. I'm like, yes, I've read the Constitution. I understand it. But like to really dig into what was going on and like, okay, I need to do more there. So I put that in the anti-library as something to come back to remind myself. So when you were talking about story, I thought of the storytelling animal and my understanding about the book, I haven't read it because it's in the <laughs> anti-library, is that it talks about our innate, like hardwired urge to physically tell stories, urge to really sit around a campfire and listen to the stories. And, but that all comes from, from what I understand of the book that I haven't read, it all comes from the way that our mind creates narrative. Yep. So as a narrative guru, you would probably, as you're nodding, would probably agree with like, yeah, narrative is a big thing. And I've heard other, I've heard a lot of coaches 
And I was like, are the, are the specifics important and useful? No. I've heard a lot of coaches mention storytelling and creating narrative, but I don't think I've really honestly thought about it as like, I always thought of it like as the, the thing that added balance to it all. Not, I hadn't really thought about it as like, no, it's actually probably the real main thread. It's just co-create a story and, and do our coaching. So I know that isn't yeah. a question, but it's me <laughs> riffing off. But that the book is one that's been in the anti-library for a while. I don't remember who first recommended it to me. Um, but yeah. Hmm. Anything else jump to your mind that you want to talk about or ask about? You are allowed to ask me questions. I won't. <laughs> I don't refuse. Well, I was gonna. I was gonna say. I. I with all, also not having read the storytelling library. I. I totally concur with that summary. That, I mean, all you have to do is look around at how much money giant companies spend to tell us mm. stories, to start to understand. Like this is. This is deeply embedded in how we make decisions, how we understand our places in the mm. world, how we understand the way the world works. We, we deeply buy into stories that aren't good for us. We deeply buy, you know, and we feel right. very tied and invested to those. There's the, the, like any tool power or power, it can, <laughs> it can be used it, for great. Right. Good you, or you saw evil. where I was going. I couldn't, I couldn't get it out, but <laughs> I tried to the, finish people's sentences, but <laughs> no, you helped me out. You, you, you bailed you bail me out. I appreciate it. But that's but that's the it is a thing we take for granted, this this idea of story. But commercials are stories, jokes are stories, tweets yeah. are stories. I mean that you know, we are surrounded by aspects of storytelling all the time. Yeah. My mind jumped back to New York City and like the stories that even though I know it's what I'm doing, the stories that I tell myself about what's happening with that person or with that driver, or like it's just, it, it's almost like the only way that my, it feels to me, I'm guessing it's the same for everybody. The only way my brain can make sense of all this is if I can like take in a bunch of data points, oh, pointillism, zoom out, mm-hmm. go, yes, it's people, in case people don't know the Surat, one of his most famous paintings is an afternoon, it's in French, but it's an afternoon on some island, I think is the title of the painting. So like zoom out, oh, look, it's people with parasols on an island. And then, and that lets me go, okay. And like ignore for good or for bad, ignore the person on the street, ignore mm-hmm. the guy who cut me off. Like it just lets me tie up that, that data or that experience. Let me tie it up in a little bow so I can go, yeah, I don't need to think about that. Right. And um, now I'm thinking, um, I only do these podcasts as a form of personal therapy because I'm too cheap <laughs> to pay for therapy. I'm now thinking, you know, when I perambulate, <laughs> I'm often thinking through some story and going, is that really what happened? Is that, and I'm like, oh, crud. Like I, I, I hear a podcast or something that I'm listening to maybe on the first part of the walk. And then I think about, oh, you know what? I always told myself this story about why I do something or about why I see people doing something. And now having listened to that, now I'm thinking maybe I'm telling the wrong story. So I, I, I think story comes up obviously a lot in my life and everybody's life. Yep. Interesting. What is, uh, let's do, let's let everybody else get like a breather. Is there anything, so somebody's listening and they're like, oh my God, yes, please. I need to do more with setting my own personal intention aside from what they should probably do, which is reach out to you and hire you to help them. Aside from that obvious answer, what is there something that you could point people at? Like if you want to learn to perambulate, go listen to Diane 
I think it is Wizga, W-Y-Z-G-A. I believe it's called A Woman Who Walks, I think is the title of the podcast. Oh, cool. If you're interested in walking, go listen to Diane's podcast. But if you're interested in learning more about how to use intention or how to figure out what your intention is, what would you recommend people start with? <clears throat> the place I like to start is really going inward, right? So in the great thing about intention is that it is operating literally all the time. So all you need, not all you need to do, because <laughs> this is one the of those things. Of this much, conversation, right? <laughs> right, right. It's easier said than done. But but find yourself, I, I like to do this at the grocery store, right? So it, any kind of um, task like that where it feels pretty transactional to you. It's not, you're not navigating a bunch of new stimuli and you're likely to be in a default intention. Another good place to do this is your commute if you're somebody who is driving frequently. So we will often fall into default intention. I do this at the grocery store. I write about this in my blog all the time because I don't like to grocery shop and I'm going to get irritated. That is my default intention is that I want to get this over with. We apparently were separated at birth. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, something is going to go wrong. Something is going to, and that's all default intention, right? So if I get into this place of, let me, let me, I I get into this line. I know I've chosen the wrong line. It doesn't matter that there's only one person in front of me and there are 15 people in every other line. This is going to be the wrong line. You know, it's all that stuff, right? And in some ways, default intention becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If, if all I can do is be anxious to get out of here, I'm going to get in my own way. The time is going to go slower. Right. I'm going to be more likely to be irritated by something that happens than I would be if I sat for five seconds in my car before I go in and say, okay, this is a great chance to practice. Mm. This is a really good chance to practice. What can my deliberate intention be? All right, I'm just going to be here. I'm just yeah. going to be present. I am just going to do this errand with the minimum of minimum of irritation and frustration with other human mm. beings who are actually not obstacles, but human beings in their own right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I didn't <interrupt> thing. <laughs> so, so I, I think, I think that is, to me, that's the place to start is to start to see, Ooh, gosh, this is where, I can really get into a default intention. This is a set of circumstances that that, may, that I will often behave in this way. Mm. Let me try to use this as a moment of practice, as a moment of self-reflection, as a moment of mindfulness to start to build up the muscle memory of shifting to default intention. Sorry, I'm torn by, I think you meant to say shifting to shifting away from default intention yes, to, <laughs> to deliberate intention. <laughs> yes, like, everything yes, you said you. was so awesome. I'm like, yes, exactly. And I heard the right thing, but I'm like, no, actually, I think you said default, but default is what we want to notice when we are stuck in. Sorry. Exactly. Hate, no, thank you. I hate you. to like correct people. I'm like, that one's important. Uh, first of all, yes, please. <laughs> and secondly, yes, please for me. Yes, please. For people listening it. When I manage to do that, it's often like, uh, uh, I love words, vertiginous, like, you know, vertigo inducing crazy, like, oh my God, there is a wonderful article by David Kane. And I'm not trying to show off. I'm trying to get people to go find these things and read them. Um, uh, C-A-I-N, I believe it is. David Kane wrote a, writes a blog called Raptitude, R-A-P-T-I-T-U-D-E. He wrote an article called How to Walk Across a Parking Lot which I love. And it's, it's just like, 
it's so full of metaphor and it's a beautiful story. And there's this moment in it where he's talking about like, he's describing the speed that you should be walking at. And he's like, I, I can't do it justice, but it's, it's the speed at which you would walk across the pool deck you know, like in your sun robe when you're heading for the, it's just like this beautiful colored. And I mean, most people have probably sat next to a pool at some point. They're like, yeah, why can't I be that person while walking across the parking monitor? So that's mm-hmm. a great article. If somebody's thinking like, what are these two whack jobs talking about? Or what's this <laughs> whack job talking to this nice person about? <laughs> yeah. Try looking up how to walk across the parking lot. I like to plug that one. Yeah. You don't need to read it. You could write it, but. No, I'll it. definitely read it. I also, this is, this is just to, to jump in on, on this thought too, though, is that to, to go, no, to, to go back to something that you said earlier, like I have to practice this all the time. I, I, you know, and, and in fact, the grocery store is easy. The, The places that are hard still for me are the reflexive reactions that I will have to the people that I love best in my life. Right. Mm. So that's a really good place to practice. If you know, Oh, this thing is about to happen. You know, how can I, how do I want to make that person feel? How can I show up in this interaction to have the outcome that I want? And then, and, and this is a really big part of this. You have to be so honest with yourself about what you're actually trying to make happen. Mm. And if you know I'm trying to make sure this never happens again. I'm trying to, right? I'm trying to make them feel bad for this thing they did to me. You know, all totally human, totally natural, totally ordinary. We all do this, but you have to name that first before you can start to go, oh, that's what default intention is. That's where I went naturally in this moment, right? And then, and just to add like another little dimension to that, to go, Nope, that's where I'm going to stay, right? To choose that, to that actually becomes like, I'm, I don't want to move away from this right now, or I'm going to stay grumpy for a while, or I'm going to. Yeah, there's it a reason actually, I'm here, right? Yeah, it's actually so freeing in some ways because you're not, you, you, because you have choice, right? Mm, yeah. I don't understand how people can do interviews and just have something to say right away. Like when, when, whenever I talk to another mind, like I've, I've bumped into a few minds and I'm like, I need a half hour break while I go collect my thoughts and think before I know what to say next. So I just put filler in. Maybe they what? just edit that part out. Maybe, but <laughs> I, it's, it would, I feel like I can tell when people edit it, no matter how well you do it, there's pacing and things change. Anyway. Okay. So we talked a little bit about if, what we're talking about here interests you. That's some ways to begin. Like uh, there's a metaphor about like how to tear a barn down that I often refer to a lot. Like you can do it with a sledgehammer, but you don't get very far before you're exhausted. Or you can show up with a crowbar and start prying boards Mm. off. And if you figure out where to put the crowbar, you can pry the whole barn down over the course of a few days. So that's a place for people to put a crowbar into this. Wait, intention? What's that? How do I, I have a default intention? Yes, you do. Like that's a great suggestion for people to start just being truthful and observant. Hmm. How about, do you have a, personal what do you think sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna walk that back what do you think about mission statements just in general i was gonna ask if you have one but like just what do you think about mission statements in general like is it, are these a good thing do they succeed i'm gonna judge you by the face you're making what do you think? <laughs> so. 
I have a long history in nonprofits. So a quick uh, sidebar, theater in this country is nonprofit unless you are Broadway. So anybody you know who is working in theater is working for a nonprofit. And nonprofits are famous for having mission statements. Of course, other people also have them. The ones that I feel like I come in contact with suffer from a couple of things. One is language that obscures the mission. Mm-hmm. So it is it is focus grouped and committed into <laughs> submission. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Until it has it is something has been created that everybody can sign off on. Yes. And I'm I am generally not a fan of that. And then the other thing that they suffer from is that they are worked on diligently by the board of directors in a retreat and then they are posted somewhere and they are not an actual wow. navigating yes. document. So I think in general they could be great if they are plain spoken, and they are actually used as guiding principles uh, of the mission of the person or organization that they're for. And one, I was going to say, can one craft a mission statement without having a vision? I mean, I know what, like grammatically, yes, one can do anything. I mean, like, is it possible to craft a useful, good mission statement if you don't have a vision? Because I think that's what, what, is missing most often. I mean, people people craft vision statements the same way. Oh, we're gonna have a thing with well, well, rainbows and ice cream for everybody. Yeah, okay, that's a vision. <laughs> but like, if the vision is completely artificial and forced, <laughs> I love he's intimidated and subdued. Then yeah, you could generate a mission statement that was equally obtuse. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. I think uh, yes, I I think. <sighs> there are a lot Do you of think it's consultants. Helpful? Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just, just, I was just going to say like, who... <laughs> <laughs> like this isn't going anywhere. Do you think people can sort out their own intention? Sorry, I don't know if that was a video lag on my end or yours. Do you think people can sort out their own intentions just as a, a, a single thing? Like, can I just do that? Or do I also need to consider what, is my vision, what is my purpose? Or can can I actually make enough traction? This is why I'm like grabbing the baton back. I'm like, ah, that was yeah. a dumb idea that I brought up. Let's go this way. So we've been talking a lot about intention. Is that enough for me? Can I do that? Or do I also, yeah, and you're going to have to also figure out your purpose and your mission and maybe even your vision. I'm going to go back to theater for a minute here because when you're directing a play, and this is really kind of inside baseball stuff, but uh, essentially a character has what's called a super objective. It is the thing that they need to have happened by the end of the play. They need to, I got to get the girl to fall in love with me. I got to win the war, right? I've got to lead the troops to victory. But they're, they're, so that's their, their super intention, right? The, the big thing they have to do, it could be their, their vision. But in each scene and beat and exchange along the way, the thing that they need is going to be smaller, Mm. right? So they're not thinking in every moment, I must win the girl, right? Right now they might be thinking, I got to get the keys so I can take the girl on a date, right? Mm. I got to, I got to borrow the car. I got to convince my dad that I can borrow the car, right? Right. 
And I think that that's analogous to what you're talking about, right? So there, there's somewhere that we're going, there's a, there's a big picture, there's the city on the hill, there's the whatever, right, that we're getting to. I think that can be overwhelming. It helps us chart our course, but that the smaller steps in between require sm- not smaller intentions, but more specific intentions. Maybe easier to set intentions, intentions which are easier to set. Yeah, and that are and that are suitable to the moment at hand. I mean, we're not we're we're not charging the Bastille in every moment, and we're right. not. I don't even know if that's a thing. We're not <laughs> storming the Bastille. Yeah, storming yeah, you know Bastille. what I mean. We're not. It's not always those high stakes vision moments that we're having. What we're having really 99% of the time is the the smaller moments that are leading to the realization of that vision. But but what the vision I think helps with is knowing whether we're on course. So is this intention that I'm setting for myself today in this hour, in this interview, in this workshop I'm leading, in this client that I'm coaching is it leading towards that? Is it leading towards that ultimate goal? Or am I going backwards? Did I take one of these side streets? Yeah, there are so many, I was going to say places in pop culture. I guess I'll go with that. There are so many places in pop culture where you're like the commencement speech that talks about and the the really good ones don't do like city on a hill. Like, you know, that's, you have to have a big vision, but but all of them, not all of them, a lot of them tend to set it up like, okay, now go, you know, and like do your thing, find your, and that, that's really hard. And there's, I'm a big fan of um, getting things done, the actual capital GTD system. With yeah. Alan, Alan David Allen. Yeah. And I, I don't push it on people, but I talk about it a lot. And I, one of the things that he also talks about, although I don't think it's mentioned much in the actual book, is that this is just one piece of what you're supposed to be doing. Like the whole point of doing this is that you can then do whatever you're doing with your life that, and this does come from, I think a blog post that has, if you're, you know, if you're in the brambles, if you're stuck in the weeds, it's nice that you want to go storm the, the Bastille, but you're going to have to first, like, what, what kind of weeds am I stuck in? I'm like, why am I stuck in the weeds? And you know, okay, what's the best route out of the weeds? So I, I'm a huge, like for me personally, I'm, I'm not stuck in the weeds. So I'm not day-to-day thinking about brambles and sticker bushes. But just because I say, yes, I'm working on this big thing doesn't mean that I'm saying everybody else has to like work on that big thing. But, and I'm going somewhere. I think that people, let's let's put everybody in a bucket, Craig. I think that people don't spend enough time changing the levels that they're focusing at. Mm. So, and I, I did, I certainly did this. This was me for many decades, but now I do intentionally sometimes sit down and do, all right, you know, um, do you know the joke, like pick the lock, don't look at the dogs, pick the lock. I told you not to look at the dogs guy talking to himself. It's an old Mm -hmm. Magnum PI joke. Anyway, sometimes you have to like, just, you know, pick the lock, pull the levers, push the buttons, do the things. And then other times you need to zoom way out and go, what's the vision? What am I Mm -hmm. doing? And then maybe, you know, when I was 22, I zoom way out. I probably went, what the heck is, I don't know, like zoom way back in. But I I think a lot of what, and like, do you agree with this? A lot of what you were saying about intention and vision, it really feels like you're suggesting that people learn how to zoom in and and then zoom out and and like realize when is the time to zoom in and go, no, the trash needs to be taken out and the lawn needs to be cut and the kids need to get to school. 
but I have to realize I spent all day yesterday zoomed in. Today I need to spend some time zooming out and read, you know, the storytelling animal or go listen to some of Diane's podcast or whatever. So I'm just wondering, do you intentionally? I mean, first of all, you seem to be agreeing with that. People who are listening can't see that you're nodding. So I let the record show that Angie is nodding. <laughs> but also, do you spend time yourself intentionally trying to balance that? Or do you just kind of go where you're called? I do a little bit of both. I have a, a big picture. I'm a big picture person. I actually don't, I'm not, I'm not great at details. I, I love to delegate that stuff to other people. But there are also day-to-day tasks that have to happen, which kind of fall out of that purview for me. So I do, I'm having many thoughts at the same time. (laughs) Yes, I, 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 I definitely do that. So I have been saying for years that I need to spend the bulk of my time reading and writing, that that's actually where the ideas of my work come from. That is how I generate new things for our clients. It's how I figure out new ways to reach our clients. That's the the highest and best use of my time as this, the leader of my company. Right. Now, that being said, there are times when I have to pay people and there are times when I have to fill out contracts and there are times when I have to deal with insurance and there are times, you know, all of that stuff. Um, Because I don't feel like those bits are me at my highest and best use of my time and resources, I I tend to chunk those into specific times that I will deal with them. And then I'll do things like, okay, quarterly, I'm going to look at where we are. I'm going to do some math. I'm going to figure out what, you know, what, what I want to have happen this quarter, what I want. I am not a, I am not a big, what's the five-year plan person, partly because I think certainly exemplified by the moment that we're living in right now. I've never executed a five-year plan. I've tried that. I was like, I'm lucky if I can well, do I mean, it, it just like seems like an, months. Right. An exercise in hypotheticals. And while that can be fun and interesting, it just doesn't, it hasn't worked for me. But I do like looking at where I am now, what's working really well. And and I'll also share that I had a moment, this was several months ago, and the, the metaphor that I used for this was uh, the game Bananagrams. I wrote about this in my blog. And the game Bananagrams, which is like Scrabble without a board. Oh, right. Yes. You can... Uh, you're making words, right? Call, With, we call it take two because you have to, anyway, bananagrams keep going. Sorry. Yeah. So you, 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 you've got these tiles and you're trying to make words out of your letters and you want to make the most, you want to use up all your tiles before the people you're playing with. And sometimes what happens is you've boxed yourself into a corner and what you can do in bananagrams at that moment is like totally start over, Right. And that can be scary to do. And I realized, and this was probably May of this year, I was like, this is a great Bananagrams moment. This is a great take two moment, right? If I take my, what I know we're great at, the assets that my company has in terms of intellectual property and people and think all of that stuff. Experience and reference, yeah. Yeah, what happens if I mix this stuff up? What happens if I look at this from a different perspective? And that's the zooming way out, right? That's mm-hmm. the taking nothing for granted about the way we operate. And, and in a sense, right, this goes back to what we were talking about in terms of a conversational serendipity that, that when you can zoom out like that and you can start to see, you can let go of the preconceived notions. You can start to see possibilities that were really invisible down in the weeds and in the brambles. I would agree. 
I'm, I, before we record, I warn everybody, when I do this, it's not because I'm bored out of my mind. It's because I'm like, okay, I'm watching the clock and there's only so much time. What's the book that you've given away most often? I'm a big reader and a big gifter of books. So I'm I thought so. I'm thinking book. really hard about this. Honestly, the books I probably give away the most often to literally answer your question are children's books by uh, Sandra Boynton. Because she is, when you have children and you're going to be reading them books, you need to have books that you are willing to read them over and over and over again. And she <laughs> is the same night, right? <laughs> that's right. And she's really good at that. So mm-hmm. I am a big fan of of her books and Mo Willems' books because they mm-hmm. are fun for all ages. But I don't really think that's what you were asking. I think you were asking something else. I have given away a bunch of Seth Godin recommended books frequently. Beautiful Constraint is one that I've given away, which is not by him, but one that he uh, put uh, me onto in a course that I took. I have given away his books a lot. This is marketing and it's your turn. Is that the name of that book? I don't have it in here. Yeah. I think it's like when it's your turn. What's to do when it's your turn and yeah, it's always your turn your, is the idea, <laughs> right? right exactly. I am going to, I'm going to turn around and look at this bookcase and see if it gives me any ideas. Oh, you and I both love Cal Newport, and I have given that book away a lot. Deep Work. Yeah, is I haven't one of my read favorites. Deep Work yet. It's on what? the anti library. I know I'm a slacker. Do you have a copy of Dava, Sobel, Dava Sobel's Longitude on your bookcase behind you? I don't think so. There is a rare, I mean, not rare, but like I haven't said, I was like, wow, if you read that one, it's a wacky book recommendations on Mover's Mindset. <laughs> Dava, D A V A S O B E L, wrote a couple of books and one of them is called longitude like latitude longitude mm-hmm. and it's just a story about how actually complicated it is to try and find your longitude when navigating before computers and it's the whole story about like this is um, timekeeping like the idea of clocks comes from longitude because in order to compute longitude you need to know exactly what time it is while you're on a ship at sea so try and make a clock that keeps accurate time for like three months on a ship and that's this whole long story about wow. and it has a unique looking spine, which kind of looks like one of your books. I'm like, do you have a copy of Logic? It's a total sailing geek book. Anyway, <laughs> but thank you for sharing book recommendations because that's one I really, really want people who are listening. I'm kind of talking to everybody else. I really want people who are listening to, to not just experience a conversation that I had the privilege and luck of having, but to walk away. I'm going to say changed. I don't mean like, oh, I fixed you. I mean like changed in the sense of you went, oh, that I got to look up and then they go off and have some new experience or, or read something or, or talk to somebody or reach out to you and hire you for whatever mm-hmm. or, or go to the theater if you're in Asheville uh, or, or maybe go virtually until things are open again. Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> what the heck drew you to podcasting? I am a serial taker of Seth Godin classes. Uh, So almost anything he puts out, I will sign up for. And I've actually taken the podcasting fellowship twice. And it seemed like a natural outgrowth for me of uh, what I'm interested in, how I want to reach people, that did you, I, I, you're right. I forgot about that. Did you, did you spin up a podcast? And I wasn't trying to put you on the spot about like, you didn't actually, but did you create a podcast? Like, did, is it a thing? Like, I've done, I, I mean, the short answer is no. I, I, did, I wanted to I, go like, why, like, why wasn't it what you thought it was going to be? Not like the course or, but like, what yeah. about 
because a lot of people listen, hey, you're listening to podcasts. Maybe you wonder a little bit about, let's get a little meta about podcasting. What right. wasn't it that you had thought it was going to be? I, I, I mean, I, it's very simple for me is that I have not come up with the actual idea yet of the thing that will bring me back to doing it every mm-hmm. week or every two weeks or whatever. So I have not crystallized. I thought I had an idea and then I actually recorded probably five or six episodes. And then I was like, this is still pretty amorphous. It's going to be really hard to tell people what this is about. It's hard enough for me to know what this is. So that's the, that's the reason. Do you, so I'm like, do you think that, I think that being artistic and creative is like something everybody needs to do and, and both needs, like it's really, you have a need to do it. And also you really need to go and need to, you need to do that right? because the process of being creative and some of it is Stephen Pressfield's concept mm-hmm. of the resistance. Do you have do the work yeah. and war of art? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Great. Stephen Pressfield books. Oh yeah. Uh, and I'm thinking that facing the fear of the blank canvas per- uh, uh, proverbially speaking, um, in the movement practice that I'm addicted to, we often talk about something we call breaking the jump. It, it usually, usually is physically jumping, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and the idea is that, um, I think I best heard it summarized by a guy named Stefan Vigru for the parkour and ADD people out there. So go, go look up Stefan's stuff about this. Uh, but Stefan, none of this, I know, I know I'm losing you, but <laughs> Stefan no. said that the way he describes breaking the jump is first you hear the call of the jump. So something that you will grow by trying, you walk by it every, like you don't even see it. So physical jumps, I would never try jumping from there to there. That's, that's just ridiculous. But first you hear the call of the jump and they're probably going to scare the crap out of you. So in the creative context, it's, you know, facing a giant 40 foot blank wall that somebody said, let's put a mural on this wall. There's that you hear that call. You didn't even know it was a thing before. Now you know it's a thing. And then there's five more phases, which I can't produce at the top of my head. But I'll just say that they've really looked at those people who, who are, I'm talking about, about breaking the jump. They've really looked at this as it's a growth process. And I really think it's the same process that creatives face. And you you went there when you were talking about, like you took a podcasting course and people who can't see the video, Angie knows what she's doing. <laughs> you know, it's like Angie has podcasting gear and good audio and it's still like doing the thing is not the hard part. It's that, as you're describing, I'm putting words in your mouth, but facing the blank canvas of, well, why would I do this? You know, like what, what's the point? Why am I engaging with it? So I'm wondering, do you find that people who don't know what their intention is that can I go at that by trying to do something creative? Like, okay, give up on intention. Just like go do something that's creative. Does that help? Is that like, a, is that ever a modality for solving the problem? I love that. I don't know that I've thought about that before, but it it very well could be. I what I come in contact with a lot is people who say I'm not creative. Just just factually untrue. Everybody is creative. Everybody has uh, it's impossible. Yeah. We all have that in us or we can't. We wouldn't make it as a species, right? So figuring out what that expression is, and I think, you know, it was inter- it's interesting that you say that. So I, I started this fellowship last week that I was asked to be part of. It's a two-year fellowship. We're meeting six times over two years. And this time, obviously, we were meeting virtually. And on, I guess, Saturday morning, we'd been doing all of this Zoom meetings and all this stuff. And they said, okay, Saturday mm-hmm. morning, 
we they sent they sent us a box and in the box there were a number of things but one of the things was a a pot of clay and they said go make a pinch pot this is that's all the instruction you get go make a pinch pot when i say to you that i am intensely uncrafty that is an understatement like i just don't make things with my hands i can cook i can write i cannot draw I know, I know. I can already hear the people saying, everybody can draw. You can learn to draw. Right. You, I can. You're exactly right. I haven't learned. Um, I have so, to draw books over here on the bookcase. Right. So I, so I'm, but I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, they're telling me I have to go make a pot. Mm. Like this is part, and I'm a rule follower and all that. So I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to not make it. a pot. Right. 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 Got to make it. So cut to, it was awesome. I had such a good time. Actually, I have it right here. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you're going to whip the pot out. I'm thinking about I whipping am. out the last thing I sketched, which is a Look total this. shit Look. show. And I made this mm. little drawing on the inside. Mm. It's cute, right? It's better than any pot I have ever made. That's well, for sure. <laughs> anyway, all of this is to say, interacting with this idea of creativity, whether you think it describes you or not, is another great place to say, what are the stories I tell myself about this activity? Where do they come from? Are they serving me? And all of that, of course, I, I did not use the word intention, but everything doves t- dovetails with intention. Intention infuses everything. Uh, as, as much as I hate to do it, I'm watching the clock. I want to be respectful of your time. <laughs> so I will just say, and of course, the final question, three words to describe your practice. I alluded to this earlier, the approach that I use with my clients and that I really do genuinely think about all the time is intention. What am I trying to, what's the outcome I'm looking for? What impact do I want to have? That's intention. Alignment. How is what I'm doing in service of that intention? And again, that can be everything from how is my body and my voice showing up in this Mm -hmm. keynote that I'm giving to how is the choice I'm making to say yes or no to this opportunity right now in service of my big intention. And then the third one is practice. It is what am I doing on a daily basis to engender self-awareness and self-knowledge to push myself a little bit further maybe than I really want to and to reflect on how all of this process is working. So intention, alignment, and practice. Thank you very much, Angie. It was a pleasure to finally get a chance to chat, like in a just open play field framework. So I hope you had as much fun as I did. And I'm sure we will talk again. Thanks. I loved it. Thanks.